Thank you, Paul. Chairman of our elders. So as you notice, Hebrews 13, through Jesus, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise. How many of you praise this morning? How many of you praise the Lord? That's the sacrifice. Thank you. Thanks for leading us. You know, it's interesting when you look at the... um, Totally forgot I was just going to say. It's either Alzheimer's or brilliance. I can't, I don't know which. <laughs> uh, what I want to do is we're, we're in the middle of, oh yeah, I remember what I am going to say. Psalm 2, it has nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought about it because of our short conversation in the beginning. It says that the Lord scoffs and he laughs at the nations. I just, that's one of my favorite verses. He just, he's sitting up there just laughing going, Look at these guys trying this. And it says that the nations conspire against the Lord. Let me tell you what I think that means. I don't think that means that they do what we typically think of as evil. Because in the Pentateuch, the uh, law, and Jesus said it later on, that the, the inclination of every human heart is evil continually. Okay? And yet we have so many, many examples of nations that do good things. I think what that means is what Paul talked about in Romans 1, that the nations or any individual, any time you take God off the throne and put yourself on the throne, that's what he calls evil. You may be doing something good, but it's still in his eyes evil. So when the nations around the world think they know better than God, that's what he's talking about. He sits up there just shaking his head, laughing laughing at the nations. And I'm so glad he laughs at us. That gives me a good feeling that he's up there just shaking his head going, okay, try it. You think that's what's best? Let's see how that works out for you. We're in the middle of a series, a different kind of faith. I wanted to spend the summer talking about how unique what we believe our beliefs are, how unique they are. They are not common. There's no way I can overstate how unique Christianity is compared to all the ancient world religions and the present-day world religions. We are so very, very different. So last week we started talking about the temple. Uh, The tabernacle, we went to Exodus a little bit and looked at that. Tabernacle later on became the temple when they moved into Jerusalem. The two greatest metaphors in the Bible are the temple and the Exodus. Those are the two greatest metaphors. They work their way through every book. You see, the Exodus is a picture of what Paul talked about in Romans, of being freed from that master, that horrible master called sin. When you turn to Jesus, that's what happens. So the Exodus from Israel becomes a picture which most of the New Testament authors use to describe our life. We have been led, Peter says, out of darkness into light, that sort of thing. And the other one is temple. We saw last week that the temple that he had them build, the tabernacle, starting with the tabernacle in the desert, was, it had so many names and, and captured so many ideas about God. Number one is that it's right in the middle of the nation, which is a picture of God wants to be with us. Remember we looked at John 1, that he, he tabernacled with us. He made his place with us. 
And so God desires to be with us. So when you get to the end of Revelation, you have the picture of the heavens, the new heavens, coming down and joining us. That's a picture of God wanting to live with his people. And so Jesus is with us in the New Jerusalem from then on. And uh, we get to talk to him. We get to take a look at him. We get to look in his eyes and see those uh, twinkling that's there. I'm convinced that uh, Tozer argued that if you could look in his eyes, you would see them twinkling with delight because he's so proud of us, because he made us. And through his spirit, we're on that journey to grow to be like him. Just like, as you said, a father laughs at a child, you know, just chuckles. I can just picture him chuckling regularly. And so that's the temple helps us understand who God is, not only his presence, but his power. The temple would bear his name, if you will. And it was different than all the other temples. And so I've asked the question many different ways over the years. In the Old Testament, we have this all this stuff, these laws and structures and the temple and the tent early on, the tabernacle. Then we move in the New Testament and they use all of the same language that they used in the Old Testament. They didn't really create new language. Priesthood is back here. Priesthood is up here. Sacrifice is back here. Sacrifice is in the New Testament. So temples here temple is there. And so when we're in the New Testament, if you really want to understand what it means to be the spiritual temple, that's us, where do you go? I've been in many Hindu temples, Buddhist temples. Do we go there and look? Absolutely not. If you've never been to one, come with me sometime to Nepal or overseas and take a look at what it's like. No, no, no. We go back to the Jewish temple because the Jewish temple is the, the, the picture, if you will. Think of it as a children's picture book. You can touch the stones. You can hear the animals bleeding. You can smell what it's like when they sacrifice an animal. It's very visceral, very real. And if we understand this temple really well, then we can understand this temple here. Us. That's why God laid the foundation back here. Hebrews argues that the true temple, this is only a copy, a shadow of the true temple. You see, here's the real temple right here. It's right here. Because the living God dwells in our midst. This is the true temple. So the more we understand about what God's design for the temple was then we can understand what his design for us is right here. Yes, he dwells in our midst. That was the whole goal. Right here in Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord is pictured the seraphim coming alive, flapping its wings, raising up, going to the east gate, turning around and looking at the temple, I think saying goodbye, and took off. And the glory of the Lord left the temple. And then what do we find in John? We beheld his, what? Glory. The glory of the only son. So when he came back and fulfilled his promise, guess what? The spiritual temple is created and the glory of the Lord has returned. 
It's amazing that he would use us. There's no billboard out there on the highway. It talks about the glory of the Lord. There's no airplane flying overhead with a, a banner behind it. You see, people look at us. That's why Paul can conclude in Ephesians 3, to God be the glory in the church. Isn't that remarkable? We are the true temple. So what I want to do this morning is just talk about the sacrificial aspect of the temple. But first, I'm going to read to you from Solomon's prayer of dedication at the temple, just a few select verses in 1 Kings 8, so that you can see what the purpose of the temple was. And now, if you understand what it is here, you understand what it is for us today. So these are just sample verses out of 1 Kings 8. May your eyes be open. He's praying to the Lord in front of the entire nation. Okay, so they're all there kneeling. He's praying to God. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day. Right off the bat, be aware of who we are and what we're doing. This place of which you said, my name shall be there. We are Christians. Don't ever be ashamed to say that. Don't ever be afraid to have a conversation about Jesus. The world doesn't know who he is. They only know stereotypes. But we know him, don't we? And he goes on. So that you will hear the prayer of your serv- that your servant prays toward this place. Then over in verse 41, I love this, this one. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but they come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. This is one of the purposes of the temple. When the world looks, they see, they hear of God's great name, and they come out of curiosity. Who is this God that you serve? Why are your marriages so good? Why do you bear up unjustly under suffering? Why do you bear up righteously? Who is this God? took me three years of dating a girl in high school to finally become a Christian, but one of the things that won me over is, what's different about your family? I'd gone on vacation and spent a lot of time with them, and your family's so different. Why? That curiosity just began to draw me closer and closer and closer. Verse 56, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. This is a place of shalom right here. If we can't be at rest, there's no hope. Quit worrying about our country. We serve the one true living God. Oh, vote your conscience. Do everything we're allowed to do legally, but don't be anxious. That's why Paul reminds us, there's no authority except that which has been established by God. Okay? We should experience shalom, not anxiety. Then he goes on in verse 58. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in obedience to him and keep the commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestors. This is the place where we are encouraged to live faithfully. You see, the answer to sin is not more prayer. The answer to sin is not more Bible reading. The answer to sin is to be with people. 
when I'm with you, I don't want to sin. It's only when I get sidetracked over here down a dark alley that sin begins to creep in and temptation. But when I'm present with you and all the coffees that I have and with you and all of that, everything in me wants to do the right thing. And that's what he's saying here. This temple is where we live in God's presence and we encourage each other. Lots of verses around that. But then he says... Just to finish that one, may you turn our hearts to him, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep the commands so that, here you go, all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. This is the core purpose for the temple. God dwelling in our midst so that we would together honor him so that all of our friends and neighbors around us, they will come to know that he is the one true living God. That's the core purpose of the temple. And so if we're not careful, if we don't construct this temple appropriately, if we don't do all the right things, then you know what? We look like the world. Most of you have heard me say many times that if we have the same marriage failure rate as the world, then we just told the world we don't believe our own theology. If we walk around grumbling and complaining and anxious, we just prove to the world that we don't believe our own theology. Guess what they do? As long as we do what the world does, then we look no different, do we? That's why it's so critical that we stop and we go back over here and take a look at the Jewish temple because it's, the sec- it's one of the top two richest metaphors that helps us understand what we as a church are to be like. So let me say a word about sacrifices. Next week we're going to come back and talk about the functions. What actually happened in the temple? Because if we understand these things, these functions, then we can see how the authors of the New Testament use that language over here. But one of the key functions was sacrifice. You had to come to the temple, according to Deuteronomy 12, to offer a sacrifice. You could not offer it in a local synagogue. You couldn't. You had to come to the temple to do it. So right off the bat, we learned something about sacrifice. It was meant to be done in community. Sacrifice is a community activity. So I sat down and did some reading. And every nation around Israel had uh, a sacrificial system. They all did. They all sacrificed animals. That was the ancient world. 1500 BC, that's what they did. But here are the key differences that Leviticus lays out that helps us understand what it means for us today to offer sacrifices. Number one, in contrast to the surrounding nations, the sacrifices were not used to discern the will of the gods. Okay? That wasn't the purpose. But in the ancient nations, it was. That's how you discern the will. Sacrifice an animal, you cut it in half. You read the divination codes from the ancient nations. You you take the heart and you cut it in half and however it falls, there's whole pages on discerning what the will of the gods were. That's not the case with Israel. Number two, the sacrifices were linked to the covenant relationship with God. The Israelites were taught, we will sacrifice because we are your people. And we know that you love us. You go to the great temple in uh, uh, Kathmandu, 
where they offer live sacrifices, here's what it's like. So you, the three of us, are standing there talking. It's like a party. It's a celebration. It's a holiday. We get a day off work. We give our goat to the priest, and we're just talking. He sacrifices the goat, kills the goat while we're having a great time. When he's all done, he, he bleeds it out, hands it to us. We take it over, and they butcher it. We take the meat and go home and eat it. There's nothing in there about fidelity in a relationship with God. Nothing at all. And in Israel, these sacrifices were there. We're not going to go through all the sacrifices. They're all wonderful, by the way. But they were designed to say, to make a statement, I believe in this one true God, and this is my way of doing it. But they were community-oriented. For example, the Thanksgiving off, uh, sacrifice. If you want to express your gratitude to the Lord for something he has done, you take a bull down to the priest and you go, here's a bull, and I just want to uh, thank the Lord. So the bull sets its throat, uh, bleeds it out, takes uh, the entrails, the guts, uh, put that on the burnt offering to the Lord. He always takes the guts, gives a steak to the priest, and gives the rest to you. And guess what? You have to eat it within 24 hours. How many of you here can eat a bull in 24 hours? What's the implication? It's a party. So I'm going to say to all of you, God just blessed me with a grandchild. Come with me to the temple and we're going to take this bull and we're all going to have a big barbecue. It's a community orientation. And it's a way for all of us together to say, Lord, we are grateful that you are our God. That's not present in the ancient nations. That gives us a hint, a glimpse, as we'll see in just a minute, of what the purpose of our sacrifices are today. Same idea. The third thing is that the sacrifices taught the Israelites to worship God rather than appease God. You see, in the ancient nations, they, they, they weren't taught to emulate the gods. The gods were to be feared. We want the gods to be appeased so they won't curse us and destroy us. So everything they did was to appease the gods. But Israel is taught, no, these are the way that you can enter into a relationship with the Lord as a community. God is pleased. They have that image of the aroma. He's going, mm, I love my people. Paul uses that image in the Corinthians. We are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now there's some of you, never mind, not going to go there. And the fourth thing is that the sacrifices were designed to focus outward and make it look at God and others rather than us. And I just talked about the Thanksgiving offering. They're designed to get us to look outward. We've been taught in today's world, many of your traditions, that a sacrifice is something that you give up. Not true. That's a woefully inadequate woefully inadequate definition. The more biblical definition is something that you give up that's costly on behalf of someone else. That's what a sacrifice is. Something that costs you something for the benefit of someone else. And these sacrifices were designed to teach that. A bull was expensive. It was expensive. And I'm going to sacrifice a whole bull to say thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And you're all invited to that. So the, the, the sacrifices, they were there to bring the nation together, to celebrate together 
and to get us to focus beyond ourselves. So when I talked about priesthood a couple of weeks back, I said the first time Peter says that we are a priest, we are a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests, this people of God, us, then we should begin to look around and say, who are we priests on behalf of? The world. So, as we're going to read in just a minute, when he says we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices, okay? In fact, Paul says in Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We should look around and say, who am I supposed to sacrifice for? I would argue each other and the world. Our life is to be one living sacrifice. Everybody, most of you have heard the verse, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, so that no one should boast. You know what the very next verse says? For. Here's the reason. We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works which were prepared ahead of time. You see, every day is like a treasure hunt. If you just simply change that one mindset, you would think very differently about life. In the morning when I wake up, the good works are already there. I don't have to manufacture them. It's like being on a treasure hunt, looking for the things that God has in store, these good works that we are to do. That's being a living sacrifice. Every day, I'm looking for some opportunity to sacrifice something of me on behalf of you. And it's a treasure hunt. You're going to trip right over a gold nugget and go, what was that? Oh, it's a good work. Awesome. See, the hard work's already been done. All throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit, he does the heavy lifting we don't. Well, when you move into the New Testament, the one sacrifice that is removed from all of the sacrifices in Leviticus is the sin sacrifice. That one's never talked about except Hebrews 5 through 8 talks about Jesus as our high priest who has already offered the sin offering completely. It's done. You no longer have to go do a sacrifice for sin. That one's taken care of. What they ask now is simply confession, which included sacrifice back here. You make a a sacrifice, you go to the, I love that, you go to the priests and you got your goat and you say, I want to present a sin offering, okay, for atonement. The priest says, great, what'd you do? Confession, still part of sin, still part of the sacrifice. What'd you do? Well, I, I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear that. Well, I slept with, Okay, now what's that? And the guy right behind you is the guy you slept with his wife. There's a line of people offering an animal, and they have to they have to confess their sin publicly. That's part of the sin offering. Can you imagine what that'd be like? If you sin today, line up for confession and say it publicly. <laughs> okay, the sin offering part is done, but then the confession part remains. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All you have to do is say, God, I was wrong. That was stupid. 
And he just chuckles. Yep, it was. You're right. You're a blockhead. <laughs> now, now you figured it out. I'm astounded at the number of people that have started into affairs and before long they're, they're caught. They learn the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. Now they're in trouble. The truth is the grass is greener where you water it. That's where it's greenest. Every sin leads you down that trap. So that one sin is offering, that one offering, sacrifice is now done. Once for all time. But all the other offerings still remain. Now remember what this series is about? I've used the metaphor every Sunday. We are very different in our religion because God reaches down with an open hand and gives us a gift. And every Sunday we're looking at those gifts. Everyone. This one is a privilege to offer a sacrifice. That's why Leviticus 1 opens up with, if anyone wants to make a sacrifice, any of us can do it. That's a gift. But at the same time, he's inviting us into something. And that's the relationship that we enjoy with him. But this gift isn't to be abused. It's to be shared with the world. Whatever this gift is each week, whatever it is we've looked at it week after week, it's to be shared with the world. Well, how on earth does sacrifice? So I gave you a hint when I said sacrifice is something that you, it costs you on behalf of someone else. Listen to these two passages, and they're very familiar. One of them we've read several times here. It's First Peter. First Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, church, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood on behalf of the world, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are those spiritual sacrifices? Right after that, he said, You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Who on earth are we declaring that to? The people that live in darkness. That's who. The people that live in darkness. And then I want to say uh, thank you, Paul, for um, reading Hebrews, because this is one of the other places where the concept of sacrifice for the Christian is listed. Now think about this in the context of community. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Did you know in the Old Testament the concept of individual worship was not present? In fact, Deuteronomy 12 specifies you can only worship at the temple together as a nation. They didn't have the concept of individual worship. They had the concept of corporate worship. Now, there's nothing wrong with individual worship, but think about how that carries forward. One of my favorite psalms, which we sing, Psalm 42, is a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. You should read the verse before. I remember, I remember, it's a Jewish leader, I remember when I got to go to the temple with the throngs of God's people and worship you. How long, O Lord, as a deer pants for the water brooks, my soul longs to worship you. What he's saying is I long to be back with the people of God at the temple celebrating and worshiping. 
That's the picture behind this. Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of corporate praise. That's why he says, let us. We do it together. In just a minute, we're going to let you go to celebrate communion, but you're going to listen to more music. Enjoy it. But he goes on. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name. To whom? Who are you professing his name to? The picture requires someone else in view. Love one another. How do you love if there's no one else to love? Forgive one another. How do you forgive if there's no one else to forgive? Carry one another's burdens. How do you carry one another's burdens if there's no one else to have a burden to carry? You can't fulfill any of these commands without being in community. But he doesn't stop there. Do not forget to do good. To whom? And to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is jumping up and down with joy. That's a sacrifice. That's what Leviticus 1 through 7 taught the Israelites. And it was very different than Egypt where they came from and Canaan where they were going to. Very unique principles that the rest of the world had never even thought of. These are the principles that carry into our lives as a church, as the true temple of God. We sacrifice because God loves it. We sacrifice for each other. That's what a sacrifice is. Get the picture? It's a good time to nod your heads. All right, good. That's a sacrifice. It's not giving it. There's nothing wrong with giving up stuff and fasting and all that. I'm not criticizing any of that. But when you think of the biblical concept of sacrifice, think of it as I'm going to give up something costly for someone else. And every one of you knows somebody that could use a costly sacrifice. Don't you? God just is so pleased with those sacrifices. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for sending us your son. Wow, talk about a costly sacrifice on behalf of someone else, a true sacrifice. Thank you for stepping into a very dark world back here that didn't understand any of these concepts and begin to lay the foundation so that as your true temple where you reside and where your name dwells, we can call you our God and you smile because we're your people. So help us to continually learn what it means to offer up these wonderful sacrifices, to present our very bodies as a living sacrifice on behalf of those around us. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.